<laughs> hey, one of the things we love is when we talk about God's goodness, one of the ways we can really like lean into that is a thing called testimony, uh, is to testify, to tell about the goodness of the Lord in the land of living, to actually open our mouths and look at another human and be like, I saw God do this, or I prayed this, and this is what God did. Uh, and the only way that happens is if you create space for it. So we're going to create some space for that here uh, for about the next two minutes. Uh, some of you, you don't have any, and that's okay. Don't make one up. Don't be like, I saw God in a burning bush. You did not. Don't tell anyone that. But we want you, I want to urge you to go live a life worthy of the calling that you've received so you get some testimonies. You get testimonies by being faithful to what God's called you to do. And don't think just like, oh man, I saved a whole village of small Indonesian children. No, like think like I felt like the Lord wanted me to buy a coffee for this guy, so I did. And he felt the love of God. That's a testimony. I prayed a prayer for peace, and God gave me peace for a meeting. That's a testimony. So don't always think up here. If you have up here, we want to hear them. And over the last 48 hours, we've seen a lot of the work of God. We've seen people hear his voice for the first time. We've seen people get healed. We've seen somebody walk up and be like, I feel like God wants you to know this. And then they just break down and cry. God is moving in the earth, and we want to talk about it. So this is what I'm going to prep you to do. Think through your week. Or if you have to think longer about something that God did, I don't, fine. Testify again to the thing you've already shared. But you're going to tell the person next to you what God's done. And if that makes you really nervous, just, just get nervous. We got to get used to talking about what God does and who he is and testifying. So you're, if you're with your wife or husband, tell them. They go, hey, I was praying this week and this is what I feel like God did with that. If you don't have one, be like, I don't have one. Can you pray that God would provide me with testimonies this week? Is that fair? Can we all do that? Nine o'clock's like, I'm not so sure if I want to do this. That's fine. And you don't have to. And God's not mad if you don't. So for the next two minutes, turn to the person next to you. If you don't know them, they're your new best friend. Be like, my name is whatever. And then go. Share a testimony. Talk about what God's doing. Uh, like I said, pray for each other if you don't have any. It's okay if you don't. a.m. where it feels like 8 a.m. because crazy time change, right? 
Whew, thanks for being here today. So uh, yesterday, I learned two things about my husband uh, that truly both were incredibly surprising. Uh, the first was I learned that his love for Skittles overrides his desire to be an introvert. No joke. So I have this huge tub of Skittles in my office, and he says to me, you know, those are going to go stale. You really need to start letting people eat those. And I was like, that's fine. The next thing I know, if y'all were here for the conference, he was walking around the conference with a huge tub of Skittles, like, you want some? You want some? Anyway, literally, I was mortified. I was like, I am the woman whose husband is care in this tub. Anyways, okay. So I learned his love for Skittles is greater than his need to introvert. Fun fact, did not know that about him. I also learned something that I just assumed he had moved on, a hurt from the past, and he was fine with. And last night, he was like, you know, that still sometimes gets me. And I didn't know that. So I've been married for 22 and a half years. Uh, I met Josh when I was 18. So I've been with him a lot of my life, but I'm still learning new things about him, and I still want to learn new things about him. I want to know about his love of Skittles, and I want to know about the things that still hurt his heart, because he's my best friend. And we have some things coming up in the life of the church that are going to help us get to know our very, very best friend better, and I hope you'll choose at least one of them to put on your calendars in the next couple months. The first is that on March 20th, that is in just a few weeks, March 20th, that's a Sunday, we're gonna have a Q&A after each service just to talk about the conference. So if you came to the conference this weekend and you have questions, or you've heard from someone else who came to the conference and that stirred some questions you have even if you weren't here, we hope you'll stick around after first or second service next week because the whole conference was about what does a friendship with God mean? How do we stir passion in our hearts for him? How do we enjoy him and not just endure this life? So ponder, consider coming to that Q&A on March 20th. Also, we're gonna have a two-week class. It's gonna start on March 26th, and it's gonna be a class on apologetics. So getting to know our best friend means getting to know why we believe what we believe, why we can stand on truth, what sets Christianity apart from other religions, and how can we know we're following the true God? Those are questions we should wrestle with in knowing our best friend, and that's a class that's gonna be a Saturday morning class. There's gonna be some reading ahead of time, so you'll wanna sign up as soon as you can on our church website, just two weeks gonna be worth it just two weeks on Saturday mornings if you can carve that time out it will be a class worth attending and then the last thing is starting the very next week April 9th we're gonna reset the calendar with our systematic theology so if you remember last year we would have like a four-week session and then take a break and then a four-week session and then take a break uh, we're actually gonna restart that so if last year you thought to yourself, I really wanted to go to that theology class, but it just didn't fit in my schedule. I had driver's ed, or I had a college class, or I had to work, I don't know what it would be. Uh, but this year, maybe it would work in your schedule. So consider doing that, and that class is also a class that you'll need to sign up for, but it starts April 9th. Four week class, again, two hours on Saturday mornings. Um, but we wanna know Jesus better. So spending time in the Word together, um, Andrew will be teaching those classes 
And I think it will stir our hearts as we know him more, we can love him more, and that is a very good way to spend our minutes and our Saturdays. So thanks for being here and being awake this morning. Andrew will be out with the message in just a second. The book of Luke is the first of two books written by the physician Luke, sometime between 58 and 65 AD, addressing the dignitary Theophilus. Luke consulted numerous eyewitnesses in order to produce an orderly, detailed account of Jesus' life and teachings. Luke begins with the extraordinary circumstances surrounding the virgin birth of Jesus. A young woman named Mary was visited by an angel and told she would give birth to a son who would be a blessing to the whole world. Later in life, Jesus launches his ministry in the temple, teaching the messianic prophecies of Isaiah and announcing God's kingdom. Good news to the poor, sight for the blind, and freedom for the oppressed. Luke highlights the social implications of Jesus' mission, the extension of compassion and dignity to the lowest social classes, prostitutes, tax collectors, ethnic outsiders, the disabled and diseased. Jesus invites everyone to follow him and join God's kingdom. Jesus' outreach to sinners is seen as a threat to religious tradition and the sense of social stability held by the Jewish leaders. Jesus wants the religious elites to see outsiders the way God does, as sons and daughters being reclaimed from death. The religious leaders plot to kill Jesus on account of his actions and claims of divinity. Jesus is arrested and put on trial, yet the Roman governor Pilate acquits him of the claims against him. Despite this, the religious leaders use their influence to manipulate the crowd into demanding Jesus' death. Jesus is nailed to a cross, but even in his excruciating death, Jesus extends forgiveness to the executioners and hope to a criminal dying beside him. At last, Jesus gives up his spirit, succumbing to the full weight of sin. After his resurrection, Jesus points to God's plan as seen in the Old Testament scriptures. The Messiah must die for the sins of his people in order to restore the world back into a right relationship with God. So what I love about the word is that it leads you to a person. The word of God is living and active, that's what the Bible says. So the word says it's living and active, and it's living and active because a person spoke it, and that person is alive. His name's Jesus, and you can know him. And so what we're going to talk about today is when we encounter Jesus, he calls us to a life uh, that's with him and for him and about the things he's about. And sometimes we can confuse being with Jesus uh, and some very, like our world loves the idea of religion. But Jesus often, I don't know if you know this, ticked off the religious people of his day, like infuriated them to the point where they kill him. And sometimes when we get in these environments, we can feel the same temptation to act like they did. We just don't realize it. And so I'm not going to try to call you a Pharisee today, but I feel in my heart sometimes a draw to simplify and make safer the things of Jesus than it really are. Jesus calls us to do some pretty crazy stuff. Go out into all the world. 
share your belongings, pray for your enemies, love people that hate you. Like these are things that don't often sometimes mix with the traditional religious idea. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna lean into this idea of how do we know that our faith in God, and religion's not an ugly, dirty word. James actually talks about pure religion, and we're gonna talk about that. Uh, but when I, one of the things I love to do is actually stop before I speak anymore and invite us as the body here, like we have the same Father in heaven, and ask him to teach us from his word. Can we do that? And I'm gonna pray, and you're gonna think this is a transition, it's not. Uh, I'm, I, just, I hope this hurts your feelings. I wanna talk to him more than you. And I hope you wanna talk to him more than you wanna hear from me. And so can you just like position yourself for what, Lord, we just, we just stop. This is a holy thing where we open up the word of God and we go teach us. So Father, I ask for soft, moldable hearts. I ask for anointed words that carry the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would take this to a living assembly of people gathered before a living God who very much comes and meets with them and changes their very attitudes, mindsets, and hearts. We love you. And I thank you that we can feel your love. And that's my biggest prayer, that we would feel your love and invitation to run with you today. I thank you for every person in this room. Bring your freedom. Break every bond, every bond, everything that's hindering. Help us walk in freedom that you purchased for us on a cross. Teach us, be our teacher, in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen? All right, so grab a Bible. This will be important. Go to Luke 6. Uh, most of the time when I say grab a Bible, no one, I mean, sometimes we have them, sometimes we don't. Tie your life to the Word of God. Tie your life to it. Don't tie it to a pastor, and don't tie it to a podcaster. Tie it to the Word of God. The Word of God actually tells us how to live. Tells us what to think. I'll go real old school on you, like sola scriptura. It is the sole rule for faith and practice. This tells us what to do, what to think, and how to do it, really. So if you're not reading this, I'm going to exhort you, read it. You'd be amazing how many, amazed how many Christians don't read it. And you're like, I do read it, I just don't like it. Let's talk about that if that's you. We are in a reading plan on purpose. It's chapter a day. This week we were in Luke 2 to 6, and my goal was to kind of pray and be like, all right, what part of Luke 2 to 6 should I just preach into? And as soon as I read this section, I went, that, that's the one. Because what you'll, what you'll encounter here, you'll encounter at least three times before you get here. Jesus will go to a synagogue, a Jewish meeting place, kind of like a meeting place we're in, and he would teach about the kingdom of God. He would heal somebody. He would teach with authority. And then you would see the people get healed, encounter the love of God. But the Pharisees, the leaders of that meeting place, usually got mad usually accused, usually like real judgy up in there, right? And you're like, those things don't always mix. So in Luke 6, we're going to read 6 to 11. We'll stop, we'll break it apart, we'll chew on it a little bit, and we'll see if we can see any of us, any of our hearts in, in it, okay? Verse 6 of uh, chapter 6. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand 
was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that he, they might find a reason to accuse him. Did you hear that right there? So you have the whole thing. They've gathered because they believe that the God of the Bible is, the, is their God. They are there to do what they have been instructed to do. Gather in my name, read the Torah, law, follow the law. And there's a man there who literally, when it says withered hand, just, I mean, it's a messed up hand. And it probably is like disfigured a little bit and everybody knows it. He probably can't work as hard. He probably needs a little help. And so he's kind of like, not an outcast because he's there, but he's identified in the culture as like, there's the guy with the withered hand. There's Bill with the withered hand. You know, his name probably wasn't Bill. It was like something I can't say, Jehoshaphat. Jesus shows up and the Pharisees do not care about the man with the withered hand. They care about, is he gonna, is he gonna do, is he gonna heal this guy? Is he gonna do what we say he can't do? And then the reason that they're even worried about it, the Bible actually tells you why. So that they can accuse him. The only reason they care is so that they can point at Jesus and be like, how dare you? All right. But verse 8, this is scary. But he knew their thoughts. I love Jesus. And if he knew their thoughts, uh, I'm willing to say, not even just from this verse, but all of Scripture, that God knows your thoughts. So God knows what you're worried about. God knew what you yelled at your husband last night. God knows what you looked at the internet last night. God knows your thoughts. And that could either be terrifying right now, and you're like, stop it. And you'll get your tinfoil hat out and be like, I don't want that. But the Lord sees their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and he stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to them, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. That one story is our springing board for everything we're going to talk about today. So you have a miracle of Jesus Christ. You have a man that's shown compassion by the Son of God, and he heals him on a Sabbath, which is in Jewish culture of the day you don't do work. Except Jesus is regularly, if you read the, the Gospels enough, and we're in them, so you're going to see this, the Pharisees would say things like, you can't do this, but you can do this. You can't make mud to make bricks, but you can do this. And Really, they had overstepped these laws a lot for their own benefit, but condemned others for breaking them. So if you had a donkey, everybody have a donkey? And you're walking it, and it fell in a hole, would you get the donkey out on the Sabbath or leave it to die in the hole? Well, if you're a Jewish guy, you'd get it out of the hole. And the, the Pharisees had made these bending of the rules to fit when it suited them. But in this case, there's no bending, right? They just want to accuse and when I look at this, uh, what I see is religion, and I mean that in the negative sense, compared to Jesus. Those are not always the same thing. But before I condemn religion, I'll show you, I think there's some signs of religion that's not connected to Jesus. So I'll show you pure, and then I'll show you impure. Open up your Bible to James chapter 1, verse 27. 
So James is going to tell us what pure religion is. And then Timothy is going to tell us what impure is. James 1.27, he's actually going to use the word religion. So it's not a scary word. It's not a negative word. It's actually a biblical word. But when we say it, we're like, oh, you're so religious. We'll talk about that. Religion that is pure, which means it's undefiled, doesn't have any faults in it, that's pure, like pure honey. And undefiled before God, the Father, is this. So he's going to tell you, how do you know that your heart with religion in it is pure? It's this. Visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So you're like, where are the orphans and widows? I must visit them. I think the heart of James, if you read all of James, is true religion is religion that does the work of God. It goes in the name of the Lord. It doesn't look at people that are afflicted, broken, poor, downtrodden, and go tough. The law demands that you live. It actually enters into it. Jesus always enters in. He always stops for the one. He always looks at the women, children with compassion. This is Jesus. Religion sometimes gets so hard and so rule-bound that it literally will cut off orphans and widows for the sake of the rule. Have you ever encountered that in life? If you, I'm not, I was going to hate on the Baptist for a second. I think it happens in any church, any denomination, where we can get so caught up in, this is what's right, this is what tradition demands, this is what we have to do, this is what we've always done. You ever heard that? That if Jesus was to show up in the church, we wouldn't let him do what he wanted to do. This is what the Pharisees did. I've done this in my own life. I get so used to the way my life looks, to the way that I've grown my religion, that Jesus shows up and goes, I want to do a new thing. I want to heal a man with a withered hand. And I'm like, how dare you, sir? And I don't know if you see that in you. So that's pure, right? That's pure religion. Now go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. This will be our final verse of the day, and it's not going to be on the screens because I forgot to do it. It's not the tech team's fault. It's my fault. 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to read down to about verse 9. It's going to tell you, I believe, and it doesn't use the word religion here, what it looks like when religion takes over and Jesus has left the building. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. I laugh because I just love lists in the Bible that are like pedophilia, sexual sin, murder, and don't disobey your parents. You're like, that's in the list? That's in the list. And so, and, and he says, in these days, in these last days, and so I'll just read these over again. Can you see these in our world? Lovers of self. Anybody? I'm not even looking at you. I'm saying, do you see that in our world? Lovers of money. Do you see that? Proud, arrogant, abusive, 
disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So he's describing that in the times ahead, in these days that are the end days before Jesus returns, you're going to see people do this thing. And you're like, what does that have to do with religion that's pure or unpure? Well, read the next statement. Verse 5, 2 Timothy 3. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. And this is what religion does. It wants the appearance. It wants the right robes, the right colored robe, the right thing, the right ceremony, the right circumstance, the right ritual, the right words, the right... It's, it's literally... Religion is the appearance of godliness with no power or authority or love or compassion or reality of God behind it. So I'm going to ask some hard questions. In your walk with God, and I'm going to stop using the word religion, as you're following Jesus, which one do you see? Do you see some of the same? I sometimes feel the same things I see in the Pharisees. So if you go back to Luke 6, I think you see three things of religion or signs of religion that's not connected to Jesus. And I'm going to call them out, I'm going to name them, and then I'm going to try to coax us to follow Jesus uh, to destroy any religion that's not of him in us. Uh, I think the first thing you see, and you see it in the Luke 6 verse, is you see accusation. You know what accusation is? It's usually if you, if you have a finger out and you're doing this, you're accusing so when you go like this, you're accusing people. And it says they were, they were watching him that they might find a reason to accuse him. And I'll just tell you, the reason accusation is a real big deal in the kingdom of God is because God doesn't work in accusation. Satan does. Satan's forte. Satan's like go-to plan is to accuse you. In fact, in Revelation 12, do you know what Satan is called? The accuser of the brethren. So this is what Satan does. He accuses. He, he looks at people and he condemns by saying, how dare you? You did this, therefore you've earned judgment, wrath. You're a lawbreaker. This is probably what you feel on a normal... I feel it all the time. I feel it all the time. Actually, when I'm trying to pray for people that are hurting need healing, or are just broken in some way, I'll come to pray with them, and what I'll hear in my head is, how dare you think that you can pray for them and anything will happen? What voice is that? Sounds like an accuser to me. Or it'll be like, you didn't pray enough this week. You're not spiritual enough. You didn't memorize enough scripture. You should have fasted. You should have done something more spiritual than you did. Then you would see some success in this. That sounds like accusation. And what, what happens to us is so quickly, we can slip into this, right? I find that so often in my day, I'll hear something about somebody, and all of a sudden I'll have this knee-jerk reaction of like, how dare they do that? Or, have you ever said, what were they thinking? And so really, when I read what the Pharisees were doing to Jesus, I'll, I'll ask it this way. If Jesus Christ himself walked through that door and he pointed at any of us with any physical maladies, 
and he said, stretch out your hand and get healed. Are you good? You're like, yeah, it's Jesus. So let's say we invite people at the end of this service up here and we say, hey, we're going to pray for some healing and they get healed. Are you like, that's weird that I'm offended? Or are you like, yes, Jesus, do what you want to do? On top of that, you don't just see accusation, you see anger. You see a lot of anger because at the end in verse 11, it says they were filled with fury. They were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Filled with fury uh, just doesn't make sense in the context, right? They watched a man get healed and they're angry. And fury isn't just anger. Fury is like punch holes in drywall. And I don't know if you know this, so I'll say it. Anger, out of control anger is not of the Lord, gentlemen. I say gentlemen because sometimes we're like, ah, it's just who I am. It's just who my dad was. It's who he taught me to be. I punch walls when I'm mad. Jesus did not. And anger and accusation do not fit a religion that is pure and spotless and unstained by the world. And it definitely doesn't fit a life that's following Jesus. But ultimately, I actually have a lot of compassion on these Pharisees, and I'll tell you why. I think their motivation, I think the thing motivating them the most is fear. And that's the third thing. So when you look at religion that's not connected to Jesus, you'll usually see three things. And I see these things when people interact with me a lot. They will accuse, what were you guys thinking? How dare you guys do that? What about this? I, how aren't you teaching this? I don't like the color of that. Like, it's really, really similar accusations. And then usually with the accusation comes anger. And then the reason that the anger and the accusation are there is because of fear. Well, what are the Pharisees afraid of? They're afraid of losing control. They're afraid of being wrong. They're afraid of being upstaged. They're afraid of a lot of things. And you go, what that has to do with us? And, and this is where I, I turn to us. Because um, I knew this was going to be after this conference. I was like, I want to keep this short. Um, I look at the Christian faith. And I feel like a lot of us are afraid. And we don't say it. But it comes out a lot in a lot of different ways. Uh, and what I mean is there's a lot of fear in the body, like, and don't just think like, oh, I'm afraid of losing control to Jesus, but like a lot of fear of death, a lot of fear of war, a lot of fear of not being in control of governmental things. We're so afraid. And you're like, well, is that a problem? But we belong to the incarnate living son of God who has said he'll never leave us or forsake us. So literally, if I die right now on this stage, I'm not afraid. I'm going to get real weird, but like if Corona kills my whole family tomorrow, I have nothing to fear because my promise and hope is secure in heaven. If Russia takes over the United States of America, good luck. I know a lot of rednecks with guns, but sure. If that happens, what are we afraid of? And I'll go farther. I believe Jesus is calling every person in this room to follow him and build the kingdom of God at your work, in your home, to tear down the work of Satan, to lay hands on people and pray for healing, life, and power, to share the gospel to every human being you meet. And we are terrified of most of the things that I just listed. 
and not even just, I'm saying we. And I just want to breathe hope that when Jesus shows up, religion literally bows and he purifies it. And then he leads the people out and he goes, hey, that accusation's not from God. In fact, look at this man with the withered hand. Focus on the people that are broken. This is why widows and orphans go do the work of God. And I'll ask you, are you doing the work of God in your home? Are you doing the work of God at your school? Are you doing the work of God, husbands, to pray over your wife and your kids? Are you doing the things that Jesus would lead you to do? Now, everybody in here, you might actually not struggle with religion. I think there's two things, and this is not my thought. This is actually Big Red, Jeremiah George's thought. Everybody in the Christian faith, I think, we fall on two different sides. We either struggle with like what I will call a religious spirit or mindset. We struggle with like, well, that's the rules. I'm gonna ask you if that's you for a second. Don't raise your hand too quick. Or you struggle with rebellion. That's me. If you tell me what to do, I will not want to do it. If you say, don't push the red button, probably push the red button. That's rebellion, right? So let's just do this, just to like shake it off because everyone's looking at me and I feel the heaviness in the room. If you're like, I tend to go a little bit more religious, just, just let's just own it, yeah? I tend to like be a rule follower. I like the law. I mean like, yeah, okay. Where are my rebellious kids at? What's up, smokers? What's up? Uh, <laughs> well, I don't even want to brag about that. Like, yeah, we're rebellious, right? So we, we tend to, to fall on either side of this, and I think Jesus calls in his, us into something beautiful, a freedom and a life and a power and a movement that breaks the bounds. So Jesus is going to do things that don't fit in your box. You know that, right? He's going to do things that offend religion. When Jesus shows up, he's like, hey, come follow me. I want you. Let's go. David danced in a linen ephod. Everybody was disgusted. If I walked out here in my tidy whities and danced before the Lord, you okay? You're like, no, I'm not okay. <laughs> like, you should be like, we got to help him, right? But what happened in Jesus' day is he would invite sinners to eat with him. And they got mad at him. And they said, how dare he eat with sinners? How dare he eat with people that aren't clean? How dare he even sit and talk? And he said, it's not the healthy that need a doctor. So do you see that attitude in your heart? Do you see an attitude that goes, I want to go sit with the broken. I want to go sit with the ones that need healing. I want to do the work of Jesus. And Jesus constantly made the religious people mad. And I don't want to make religious people mad. I just want to make Jesus real happy. So I look at Jesus' life, and he's constantly, uh, by what he does, offending the religious. And what I mean is he stops and he writes in the, in the sand to protect the woman caught in adultery. He invites Zacchaeus to his house. He throws parties for sinners, not even parties, just eats with them. He constantly is looking at the lepers, the women, the children, the broken, the neglected, and the downtrodden. This is what Jesus does. And then James pipes in and says, this is what's pure, those that do those things. 
And I know we don't like these messages because you're like, I just want to feel good. Well, Jesus brings freedom and following him feels real good. So my exhortation, I think, is are you following Jesus? And you were like, well, how will I know? Well, I want to share Jesus' job description with you. You're like, Jesus had a job description? He did. He actually announced it when he started his ministry. Um, and then we're going to go after this stuff. We're actually going to, I'm going to, for once in my life, preach short. And we're going to lean into this. Uh, and so Dave, where are you at, man? Is he in here? He's probably out there drinking coffee with his, with his pinky up. Get that long-legged man in here. Jesus said these words when he started his ministry. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus Christ, God incarnate, the Son of God, says, he sent me to do these things. I want to send you in the name of Jesus to do these things. But before you can go do these things, these have to be done to you. So he sent me to proclaim liberty, freedom, to those that are captive. Literally, to those that are stuck in sin. To those that can't get out on their own. Those that, this not even, don't even think spiritually. This is like people that are literally in prison. Go visit them and tell them about the good things of God. Proclaim it. Proclaiming is a telling. And recovery of sight to the blind. I actually think Jesus meant this spiritually and physically. Because he heals blind eyes. He touches lepers. He goes to the sick and heals everyone that came to him. Jesus did all these things and more to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Do you know anybody oppressed? Everybody in this room should at least know one person in their life. They're like, yeah, I think they might be oppressed. It might be by religion. Go in the name of Jesus and bring freedom. You're like, can I do that? Do you know Jesus and have the Spirit of God inside of you? Go. Do it. Lay hands on them. Challenge them. Heal somebody on a Sabbath and watch everybody lose their mind. And then it says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The center of the gospel is Jesus Christ on a cross. And it's the moment that humanity goes from condemned to we now have favor. You know the word favor? It's, I only use it really like with my daughter Grace. I favor her over my sons right now. I just like her more. But when she walks in, she gets my attention, she gets my smile. I love her. She has my favor. And that's a small taste of this moment that you come to Jesus and you go, will you take my sin and give me your righteousness? Will you come and open my blind eyes that I can see where I'm oppressed? And it might be by a religious spirit. Will you take that off of me and make me free? This is what Jesus says. I'm going to give the, the Lord's favor. So you are favored by God if you're in Christ. Favored. He likes you. He wants to use you. He wants to send you. And so what I want you to pray with me is kind of one thing. And it's just a statement I say to Jesus all the time. Whatever you want, Jesus. Can you say that prayer with me today? Whatever you want, Jesus. 
And here's the thing, if you legitimately pray that, he will, he will, he will do some stuff. I've, I'm fond of saying whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want, you got it. So if he wants to wake me up at three in the morning to pray for each of you by name, I will. If he wants me to go uptown Oxford and stand on a soapbox and declare the kingdom of God, I will be that weird guy. If he wants me to join Mike and Pat at a food pantry and pack boxes for people that don't have a lot, I will. If he wants me to sit in that prayer room and just pray the rest of my life, I will. If he wants me, he's got it. What breaks religion is that statement. Whatever you want, Jesus, you get it. And that's my only ask, that you would let him search your heart and do you, did Jesus have everything? And so we're going to lean into kind of three things, and they're things Jesus did. And so if you are, I don't even see any prayer team members in this room. Uh, I'm just going to line up as many prayer team members as we have, and we're going to end soft. But Jesus looks at the man with the withered hand, and he says, stretch it out. And I don't know if it was like this, and he was like, it was like, you know what I mean? How cool it would be to be there. But I, last time I checked, Jesus is alive. Therefore, Jesus heals. Jesus restores. And it might not be physical, but he restores all things that he touches. And then you look at two chapters before that. <clears throat> there's a boy that's possessed by a demon. And when Jesus shows up, it shrieks. And he's like, get out of that. Get out of him. And so Jesus delivers, sets free the oppressed. And then also there's three chapters before that, there's a man paralyzed. And we know the story because his friends lower him through the roof. He not only forgives that man's sins, but heals his legs so he can walk. This is Jesus. This is what he does. So I'm going to sit you before Jesus. And then if you're a prayer team member, elder, can you just line up? We're going to kind of just let people come, let people go, do whatever they got to do. So Jesus, we just sit before you. And we go, whatever you want. Whatever you want, Jesus. I thank you that where you go in scripture and then where you go on the earth today, freedom, life, love, the oppressed are set free, the captives go to liberty and that you can do that right now in this room I thank you Jesus that you always turn to the side for those that are broken you were never ashamed of those that were tagged as sinners you actually invited them to eat with you that you might pronounce the kingdom of God over So if you're sitting in your seat and you can pray that prayer, pray it. Whatever you want, Jesus. Just know that if you pray it, he's going to ask you this week to follow him. And you're saying yes right now. I'm going to leave you right there. But if you feel maybe it's a religious spirit, maybe there's rebellion. Maybe it's a form of godliness without the power of God. 
Maybe it's, I don't know what it is, accusation, anger. Maybe you're just terrified of so many things. We want to pray for you. Everybody up here is actually an elder. We'd love to pray for you. That's hard to sing. Like, you're like, is he? Is he good? I just want to pray the goodness of God on you. That's all I'm going to do. So Jesus, I just ask in the na- your name that the one that's struggling with that idea, that you are good, that you would pour out your goodness on them. That right now in this room, they would encounter your love, your mercy, and your gentleness. I thank you that the, the word says that a, a bruised reed you wouldn't even break because you're so gentle. You love them. Would you break down every wall, every defense, and show them your great love? I pray by the time they end this service, they would be able to shout that song. So if you're here and maybe that's you, and you can just ask God, God, will you show me your goodness? Ask him. Lord, we just wait before you because with you, there's life. So we thank you for your goodness in the land of the living, that we have seen it, we have tasted and seen that you are good, and we desire nothing else. Have your way in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat really quick. When we talk about the goodness of God, one of the easiest ways to spread the goodness of God is to testify about the goodness of God is to open up your mouth and just share, hey, I watched God do this. I saw God answer this prayer. And we're gonna enter into that here in a second. So if that makes you nervous and you need a long time to think, be thinking about your last week. What did you see God do? And typically when I say, hey, let's testify, we always think mountaintop. We think like, well, I saved a whole orphanage of Indonesian children. That's not what I'm looking for. If that happened, I wanna hear it. But really it's, I asked God for peace for this meeting and he gave me peace. That's a testimony. We just don't always think it's a testimony. So maybe it's that, maybe it's, I felt the Lord lead me to buy a coffee for a person. You're like, is that a, that's a testimony. Talk about what God has done. And if you're in here and you're, you're like me, some weeks I don't have any, but I want them. And so I ask God. So if you're here and I'm about to like unleash you to share testimonies with each other, and you're like, I don't have any, this is what you'll do. You'll say, I don't have any. Will you pray that God would provide me some? And then just buckle your seatbelt, get ready for the ride. And be obedient when he leads you out, all right? So think through your week, what you're going to do. If you came with somebody, if you're with your spouse, you're just going to share with them. Babe, this is what I feel like God did this week. Talk about what God's done. If you have a big one, share it. If you have a small one, share it. If you don't have one, hear me, don't make it up. I saw God in a burning bush this week. You did not, so you didn't. You don't have to make it up. There's no shame. But Jesus invites his kids to join him in building the kingdom. And when that happens, we want to talk about it. Y'all know what you're going to do? Y'all know what you're going to talk about? If you're really nervous, I'm nervous. Ready? On your mark, share with the person next to you something God's done.
Good morning, cobblestone. I love, love, love all the community, all the conversations. Because you know, one of my biggest things is when we come into this place, it's not just to sit silently and learn or sit reverently and worship, but it is also secondarily, if that's a word, the community that we're supposed to have together. So thank you for participating in that. When I was just a couple months after my 18th birthday, I met this tall, dark, and handsome man, quickly fell in love with him, and wanted to spend all of my time talking to him. So I'm not a night owl, I've never been a night owl, but you could find me at 3 a.m. still talking on the phone with this tall, dark, and handsome man. He moved to Texas, took a youth ministry position there. I was still in college. So we called, we emailed, we talked, we wrote letters, right? He was my best friend, is my best friend, and I love knowing him. I don't get tired of learning new things about him. For example, this weekend, I learned that he has no shame in carrying around a huge, massive, tub of Skittles and offering them to all of his friends. <laughs> Legitimately. I love knowing him because he's my best friend. I want to continue the whole rest of my life to get to know him more. Now I tell you that not because I think he's great, but he is, but because I have one best friend who ranks higher, and that's Jesus. And even more so, I want my whole life to be spent knowing him more. And I want that for you too. I want you not to just know a little bit, not to just know enough. I want you to hunger to know him, to know why he's so good, to know why he's worth sacrifice, to know why any trial is not worth comparing to him. I want you to know that. And we have several things coming up in the life of our church that I really think are going to help us know him. Help us know our very, very, very best friend. And so I hope you can choose at least one of these to plop on your March or April calendars. You can sign up in the atrium with me. You can email Stacy. You can hop, easiest way, hop on our website and it's on the calendar. But here's what's coming up. Starting March 26th, we have a two-week class, both on Saturdays, on apologetics. And we say, we believe Jesus, Jesus is God. Why? How do we really know? What about the other religions? Let's talk about these things. Why is Jesus for sure king? Andrew's going to be teaching a two-week class on that. You have to sign up. There is some homework. It's going to be great and deep and good and help you know what we believe with more confidence. So think about signing up for that apologetics class. It'll be March 26th and April 2nd. Then the very next Saturday, there's gonna be a four-week class. Those four weeks are gonna restart what we did last year with systematic theology. So if last year you were hearing about the systematic theology classes that we were teaching and you thought, gosh, I wish I could do that, but this year calendar's too crazy, maybe this year is the right year to carve that out. I have dinner with a very good friend of mine every Monday night, and she attended those classes, I think all of them last year, 
And I loved Monday nights because I got the Cliff Notes versions. Like, here's what we talked about. Here's what we discussed. Here's what I'm thinking about. It's worth it. So that'll be four weeks. Again, two hours on Saturday mornings with Andrew teaching systematic theology. Again, let's get to know Jesus. We've just finished up a whole weekend of a conference on friendship with God. How do we enjoy him, not just endure life? How do we learn to make the prayer of our hearts, Jesus, be my best friend? And we want to talk about that more, talk about all the things that were discussed in the conference. And so the last thing I want to tell you about is on March 20th, here in a couple weeks, that's a Sunday, March 20th, after both services, the elders are going to be sticking around just to talk more about all the details, everything that we learned at that conference in particular. So if you were here and you want to talk more, or maybe you couldn't come, but you'll be able to listen to the recordings or your friends attended and you just have questions about what they're saying, stick around after service March 20th. Now for my little friends, if you are in preschool or elementary, I want you to be friends together while you're learning about being friends with Jesus. So will you stand yourselves up, preschool and elementary friends, and head to the back where your leaders will be waiting for you for family ministry. Andrew will be out with the message here in just a moment. The book of Luke is the first of two books written by the physician Luke, sometime between 58 and 65 AD, addressing the dignitary Theophilus. Luke consulted numerous eyewitnesses in order to produce an orderly, detailed account of Jesus' life and teachings. Luke begins with the extraordinary circumstances surrounding the virgin birth of Jesus. A young woman named Mary was visited by an angel and told she would give birth to a son who would be a blessing to the whole world. Later in life, Jesus launches his ministry in the temple, teaching the messianic prophecies of Isaiah and announcing God's kingdom. Good news to the poor, sight for the blind, and freedom for the oppressed. Luke highlights the social implications of Jesus' mission, the extension of compassion and dignity to the lowest social classes, prostitutes, tax collectors, ethnic outsiders, the disabled and diseased. Jesus invites everyone to follow him and join God's kingdom. Jesus' outreach to sinners is seen as a threat to religious tradition and the sense of social stability held by the Jewish leaders. Jesus wants the religious elites to see outsiders the way God does, as sons and daughters being reclaimed from death. The religious leaders plot to kill Jesus on account of his actions and claims of divinity. Jesus is arrested and put on trial. Yet the Roman governor Pilate acquits him of the claims against him. Despite this, the religious leaders use their influence to manipulate the crowd into demanding Jesus' death. Jesus is nailed to a cross, but even in his excruciating death, Jesus extends forgiveness to the executioners and hope to a criminal dying beside him. At last, Jesus gives up his spirit succumbing to the full weight of sin. After his resurrection, Jesus points to God's plan as seen in the Old Testament scriptures. The Messiah must die for the sins of his people, 
in order to restore the world back into a right relationship with God. Well, hey, how are we doing? All right, grab a Bible, go to Luke chapter 6. And as you're going there, I want to welcome you. I'm, I mean, I want to get right to work. Um, I've said this before, but I actually did it in first service, so I feel pretty confident I'm going to preach short, and then we're going to let Jesus give us freedom. Okay? Uh, the thing I feel like the Lord's told me to do, and this is going to sound a little weird until I explain it with Scripture, is to offend the religious spirit. And then we're going to tear it down together. It's going to be really fun. Uh, and so what I'd like to do before we even open up the Bible, because this is what you need to know about what I think about the Bible. Uh, the Bible leads you to a person. The Bible is a living document because a person spoke it, and he's alive, and you can know him. And so the Bible, when I read it, it leads me to Jesus. And when I encounter Jesus, I get freedom. And when I encounter Jesus, I get healing. And when I encounter Jesus, salvation springs forth. And when I encounter Jesus, I get his kingdom, not mine. And I want all of that for you. I want you to encounter Jesus. And so I want to sit because I hope this offends you. I like talking to him more than I like talking to you. I hope you like talking to him more than you like hearing me talk to you. And so if you're a lover of Jesus, can you pray with me right now that we would hear his voice? And that this book would lead us to him. And he's real. And so I'm going to pray, but it's not a transition. I've been in churches where they pray as a transition. I, if we get lost in a prayer meeting, we did church. All right? So would you invite the Lord to teach you that you would have ears? And Wait, Jesus, we just, we stop what we're doing. And I ask that you would make this assembly a holy assembly. And it's holy because where you are, there's holiness. So come on in and have your way. I pray that you would demolish every spirit that's not the spirit of God. Every mindset that stands in opposition, opposition to the knowledge of God would be destroyed. That the kingdom of God would come in power in this room. We submit to you, King Jesus. And so would you come teach us Give us ears to hear your word and to live it and to do it. I ask, Father, I ask for anointed words that would drip with the authority of heaven. I ask for you. I want to be with you. We love you. And I thank you that we can say out loud because you first loved us. Thank you for loving us so well. So I thank you that you know everybody in this room. You knew they'd be here. You knew they had to listen to me talk. You knew everything about them before they ever were. Would you show them? Would you come encounter them? Would you set the oppressed free, the captives at liberty, and come and announce the favor of God over the people of God. In the name of Jesus, I pray these things. Amen? Amen. I feel the goodness of the Lord. And if you don't, by the end of this, I'm going to invite you to let Jesus give, like, show you that. And, and so when we get into Luke 6, I want to set the table like this. There's a difference sometimes between following Jesus and what has been known as religion. 
all right? Now, here's the thing. The Bible talks about religion that is pure, and we're going to talk about that. But the Bible also talks about religion that is not pure and does not include Jesus in it. So you can be very religious and have Jesus nowhere in the room. You can be very religious in your speech, in your dress, in your, all that you do, and have no power of God in it. You can also be religion that is pure. And we're going to talk about that. But what you'll notice if you're in our reading plan, and this is what I'll say about this, it's not a reading plan that's hard. It's a chapter a day. And this is why. Attach your life to this book. Don't attach it to me. Don't attach it to Jeremiah. Don't attach it to a man or a woman or a podcaster. Attach your life to the Word of God. Because what happened, I'll go history with Sola Scriptura, this is the sole rule and like purpose. Like this tells us how to live and how to do it. This does. And so we want our lives to look like the book. That's what we want, right? We are people of the Word led by the Spirit of God. Why? Because the Bible tells me so. And so in Luke 6, if you've been reading the reading plan, I love marveling at Jesus. I love everything about Jesus. I've always said this. I love how he treats women. I love how he treats kids. I love how he goes to the poor. I love how there's a whole mob of people and he's like, oh, there's one person. I'm going to go love them. I love Jesus. And what I love about Jesus is he's always ticking off religious people. And when I read these stories, I'm like, I'm not that religious person. I'm obviously the person that's like, bravo, Jesus, you did it. But what I found as I studied it, I start to identify things that the religious spirit does and I see it in me. And I don't want it. I want to be, I want to join Jesus. I want to be a team Jesus. You too? Let's be team Jesus. And so to be team Jesus, you sometimes have to do the hard work of going like, do I see any Phariseeism? Do I see any religious religiosity in me that I want him to remove? And so over and over again, I don't know why he does this, but I think it's because Jesus is a little more ornery than we give him credit for. He regularly will go to a Jewish synagogue, which is a Jewish meeting place. We're in a meeting place. It would look like this, not quite, but kind of. And they would gather, they would read the Torah, the law, and they would do their religious duty. Jesus would go there and do the most amazing things. And they always got mad. And I think he probably had a twinkle in his eye like, this is going to be fun. I'm going to go there. They're going to get so mad. But because they're going to get mad for the silliest stuff. People are getting healed. People are getting delivered. He's teaching with authority. How dare he? Like, the stuff they get mad at. And so in Luke 6, I was reading the reading plan this week, which was Luke 2 to 6. And I got to this story, and I was like, that's what I'm supposed to preach. So we're going to read it. Then we'll stop. We'll break it apart. And then we'll let God do whatever God wants to do, because it's better than what we want to do. Luke 6, verse 6. On another Sabbath, so this isn't the first Sabbath Jesus has done this, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that he might find a reason to accuse him. So as we stop for a second, you'll have to notice, number one, it's the Sabbath. This is Jewish law for the day you don't do anything. And if you do, you're a lawbreaker, and you need to be cleansed, and you need to follow the rituals, you need to do all this. And they would shame you openly. The problem was the Pharisees of the day made so many little side rules where they could get around the law for their own benefit, but they would condemn the people with it. 
So they would say, even if your donkey, y'all have a donkey? Did you bring your donkey to church today with gas prices? Ba-ding, ching. Uh, so if your donkey fell in a well, they would be like, you cannot get that donkey out. But Jesus knew that the Pharisees would have done that. They would be like, you definitely would get your donkey out of the well if it fell in a hole. You don't want it to die. But a man with a withered hand. And this is what you have to know. He was so, like, he, this guy, I don't know if it was this or, like, what it was, but it was so well known that you're like, that guy right there, he has a f- physical deformity that probably hindered his work, that probably affected his status in the temple. And Jesus is teaching, and a man with a withered hand's there. And you would think, the Pharisees, the ones that are holding up the rule and the word of God would have actually cared about the poor and the broken and the ones that God made, but they don't. What are they doing? They're watching Jesus. And why are they watching Jesus? Like scripture tells us, they are watching Jesus for one purpose, so they can accuse him. So they can be like, how dare you? You broke the law. Now, that's the first thing, I think, that's a mark of the spirit of religion, accusation, and we'll talk about it. But let's continue reading, verse 8. But, this is scary, but he knew their thoughts. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to, biblically, guess what? God knows your thoughts. That's either really terrifying, or you're like, I think I'm okay. <sighs> uh, right? So God knew, God knows right now, what you're worried about, the, the plans of your day. He knows your thoughts, which is literally, you have nothing to hide. So when you come to him, you're not going like, hey, I, I did this thing last week you should know about. He's like, I know, I know. And that's why the cross is such good news, because he knew, and he dealt with it. And so he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and he stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, I'm going to stop right there. Can you picture this? Jesus is teaching with authority because this is Jesus, the Son of God. There's a man with a withered hand. They're all waiting to accuse him, looking at him. And then he says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And then he slow scans them. Like, just, I think he's just mean mugging them all. You know what I mean? Like, I dare you to say no. I dare you to stand up right now and be like, it's unlawful. I, I, I feel like he was like, like playing chicken with them. But apparently no one does. And after looking around at the ball, he says, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. So I don't know if that was like, like, you know, I don't, it would have been so cool to be in that room, right? Like a man that literally is deformed, that probably defined a large portion of his life because he only could work with one hand. Everyone knew him as one hand Joe. Like all of a sudden Jesus shows up and he's like, not anymore, stretch your hand out. Doesn't touch him, just says it. And in an act of faith and obedience, it becomes straight. This is what Jesus does when he shows up. Notice what religion does, verse 11. But they were filled with fury. Fury is a weird word. It's not just anger. Fury and discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. And so just in that small story, 
you get Jesus, the kingdom of God, the power of God, the reality of when we follow Jesus, what does he bring when he walks in a room? And then you also have the reality of the law keepers, the rule followers, and the religion of the day. And they aren't the same thing, correct? Correct? You're not going to talk to me at 1030? Cool. All right. Now, when we talk about religion, a lot of us, if I was like, how's your life with God? None of you would be like, I came here today because I want to be really, really religious. Anybody? Maybe that's how you woke up today. So we don't want to look down on the word religion, and I'll tell you why. Open your Bibles to James chapter 1, verse 27. We're going to go back to Luke, so if you want to keep your finger in there. James 1, 27. James is going to tell, use the word religion, and he's going to tell us what pure religion is, and then we're going to go to 2 Timothy and look at what impure religion is. So in James 1, I want to talk about what are the signs of religion that's not connected to Jesus. So we like to always go, ew, you're so religious, but the Bible uses the word religion. And so in James 1, it says religion that is pure. So think about honey. We want our lives, our religion, our faith, our following Jesus to be like honey that doesn't have flies in it. Pure, undefiled. It's not dirty. It's pure before God the Father is this. And he tells us how to gauge it is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is how James tells us this is what pure religion looks like. It's religion that does the work of God. You're like, where do you see that? When you go and visit orphans and widows, what did Jesus do? He visited orphans and widows and always turned aside to the sinful people. He didn't really care about religious status. He always cared about what God wanted him to do. And apparently God really cares about the outcast, the broken, the poor, the prisoner, the oppressed, the sinner, anybody that's literally been shoved out of a religious system, Jesus is like, you come to me. They can get mad all they want, but you come to me. And when we look at our lives, a lot of time we're like, yeah, I think I'm pretty pure, you know, like my religion's pretty pure. Well, are you actually caring about the things that God wants you to care about? And then he says, it's pure if you go after the widows and the orphans and if you're unstained by the world. This is the Bible, right? So that's pure religion. And you're like, well, what's impure religion? We'll go to 2 Timothy 3. We're going to start in verse 1. It's not going to be on the screen uh, because I forgot to put it in there. That's on me. But I'm just going to read it to you. And he's going to tell us what are the marks of religion without Jesus. What are the marks of trying to look moral and upright and religious without Jesus? 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. But understand this that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. I love lists in the Bible. You know why I love lists in the Bible? Because they're always like, you want to know what it looks like to be worldly, ungodly, and religion that's not pure? Disobey your parents. But it's in the middle of lists that are like, pedophilia, sexual sin, murder, 
don't disobey your parents. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, wow. The, 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 the metrics for God's kingdom and what's good and pure are way different than ours sometimes. But I'll ask you this. When you look around our world, and I won't even go our world. Let's make it personal. When you look around the church of Jesus Christ, do you see lovers of self? Do you see lovers of money? Do you see pride? Arrogance? Any abuse? He goes on and says, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. These, this is the list. And I look around and sometimes I see some of those things in me. I see some of those things in us. I think definitely see those things in the world, yeah? And you're like, well, what does this have to do with religion? It's his next statement. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. So religion loves the appearance of godliness. It loves it. It loves to put on the robe and say the right, right words and dip the right amount of times and eat the right meals and not the wrong foods and do the right things and be with the right people and get in the right circles, but Jesus didn't care about any of it. So you can be real religious and Jesus not be in the room. You can be really, really, really religious and miss Jesus entirely. So when we look at these stories, I think we need to identify, well, what's the identifying markers of a spirit of religion, of a heart that's bought into religion and not what Jesus is about? So if you go back to Luke, you'll notice I kind of identified three things, two that are right there. You see them in there, but I think underneath, what, what was motivating the Pharisees? And, and the first thing you see is accusation. It says, so they might find a reason to accuse him. Now, I know you all are very nice people. You never accuse anyone. But have you ever said, how dare they? Probably not in front of anybody, but at home. When your wife tells you about Frank at the office who cheated on his wife, and you kind of go, how could he? That, that's accusation. Whenever you do this movement, That's usually accusation. Uh, and we get really comfortable with it because the world loves accusation. They're thriving in it right now. You do anything wrong, they will accuse you, destroy you, cancel you, whatever word you want to use. But here's the problem with accusation in the house of God and in the people of God that say they belong to Jesus. Accusation is actually Satan's main weapon. It's his forte. It's what he walks in, breathes out, is he's good at. I mean, Revelation 12, do you know what Satan is called in Revelation 12? The accuser of the, the brethren. This is what Satan does. Satan accuses. Satan goes, you didn't measure up, die. This is, and if you're like, what's that look like? So in my life, when I pray for people, there's a nagging voice in my head. You know what it sounds like? You're not spiritual enough to see anything happen. What's that sound like? That sounds like accusation. So whose voice is that? I don't think that's God's. When someone trips up, I mean, I've had people already this morning in first service confess stuff that would make a church lady blush. Does Jesus condemn them and go, no. He goes, come out of that and be set free. 
So accusation is really rampant in the house of God. We just usually call it discernment, usually call it righteous judgment, righteous indignation, whatever. Just put righteous in front of it and you're good. Righteous pride. But Jesus didn't operate like this. Jesus regularly made it a habit to eat with so many sinners that the main accusation with them was, how dare you eat with sinners? And his statement to the world of the Jews was, it's not, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, it's the sick. Jesus made a regular practice of bending, like the woman caught in adultery, writes in the sand and protects a woman caught in the act of adultery of adultery. Jesus goes and calls Zacchaeus the wee little man. We make it a little kid story. A man that had no business hanging out with the Son of God, the Son of God looks at it and goes, I'm going to your house. This, there's a difference, a quantifiable difference between Jesus and religion. There is a pure religion that Jesus establishes in the hearts and the minds of women and children of God. But it starts with Jesus didn't show up on the earth and go, do you want to join my religion? As you read the Gospels, look for it. He doesn't say that. He says, do you want to follow me? Do you want to follow me, Jesus says. And where Jesus goes in the Gospel is to men with withered hands. And where Jesus goes in the Gospel, people are healed, set free, demons flee, life happens. Where religion comes in, they literally put burdens and yokes on people's backs they can't carry. So I'm going to ask you, it's gonna, you're, it, it, do you see accusation coming out? Do you have accusation coming at you? Accusation is a weapon of Satan. Satan. I can say Satan. It's Satan. The second thing, so you see accusation. They are waiting to accuse him, the Son of God. And then two, you see anger. So verse 11, they were filled with fury. They were filled with fury, which is, that's like drywall punching language, guys. That's like so angry, like, I don't even, can't even do it. Because why? Because Jesus healed a guy? They, you see this regularly with the Pharisees. Uh, everyone knows the stories of the, the friends that lower the guy on the mat and he gets healed. Uh, Jesus knew their thoughts too. And equally, that, that story says they were filled with anger. Regularly, when religion that is impure and not connected to Jesus runs into Jesus, you will see anger and you will see accusation. I encounter these things quite a bit, actually. I, si I find these things come out of me a lot. And so it's so easy to kind of slip into one of these things. And I think everybody in this room, because I can feel the weight in the room, you're like, man, I came to church to be encouraged. Uh, I believe the Lord frees us from all this stuff. But I'll ask you a question. And this isn't my thought. This is from Big Red, Mr. Jeremiah George. Uh, everybody in here, I think you probably, you falter on one of two sides. So everybody in here, you probably, maybe, and I'm going to have you identify yourself in a second, so don't just jump up and raise your hand. Some of us, we struggle being a little bit more religious. We like rules. We're like, this is how it's supposed to be, right? Others of us, we probably struggle a little bit more with rebellion. That's me. If you tell me what to do, I will probably want to do it. 
if you're like, don't touch that button, I'm gonna be like, we're gonna touch the button. So uh, let's do this. If you're in here and you're like, yeah, I feel this pool. Sometimes I, I really fall into religion. It's a little easier for me. Let's just see. Lighten it up, just own it, yeah? Religious spirits, okay. They've identified themselves, I'm just kidding. Uh, now, if you're a rebellious kid like me, yeah, like, I don't know if we should celebrate this, but here we are, right? And this is the temptation. Like, you can go religious and try to control the things of God and law it out and go, we're gonna, we're gonna tithe our spices, but, and we're not gonna lift our donkeys out of wells on the Sabbath and miss Jesus entirely, or, you can just outright not listen to them at all and run away from the kingdom of God. Rebellion or religion? We want Jesus. Team Jesus. Let's go with Jesus. And so where we see anger filling our hearts, so I'll say this typically, men, did you know that punching drywall is not a character of God our Father? Out flying off the handle, not being able to control your anger is not one of the fruits of the Spirit. It's love, joy, wrath. You know, it's not. It's not in there. And so where you start to, and this is what I said, when you get to the Bible, it leads you to a person. It leads you to Jesus. And when you encounter Jesus, sometimes you have to go, Jesus, I see what you're like, and then I see what I'm like, and I'm not like you, and I want to be like you. And if you're operating in accusation or anger today, I want you to come to Jesus and say, remove that from me. Because ultimately what I think, what I think the Pharisees were dealing with is something everybody in this room is dealing with. You're like, what is it? Fear. The Pharisees were constantly afraid of losing control, losing position, being overlooked because now Jesus just showed up and he teaches with authority and he heals people and they're not. And so they're constantly, I think, running straight into fear. And you're like, well, what are you, why does that have to do with us? Um, when I look around the people of God, I see a lot of fear. And you're like, fear? Not like fear. I mean, we are afraid of death. We're afraid of Russia. We're afraid of wars. We're afraid of politics. We're afraid of loving people. We're afraid of being wrong. We're afraid of this. We're afraid of a lot of stuff. So I'll, I'll, I'll make it about me. If I die on this state right now, I am not afraid because my hope is secure and it's attached to promises that have little to nothing to do with me and the one who made them. If Russia takes over the United States, all right? And good luck, because I know a lot of rednecks with guns. But like, but if, all right, if, we are the people of God that belong to the holy, infinite one of the universe who has told us, don't be afraid, I'm with you always. What are we afraid of? See, fear is often where the spirit of religion takes over. Well, if you don't control this, if you don't do this right, then you're out. That's not the language of the kingdom of God. So fear, I think they're afraid, and a lot of us in this room, we're afraid of judgment. We're afraid of being wrong. We're afraid of so many things when we've been told, don't be afraid. And so do you see that in you? you see fear? I'm, I chicken out a lot. You're like, what? I get afraid of people. I get afraid of social settings. You're like, you? No. Yeah. I get afraid. 
And God is like, man, I've put a spirit of power and wisdom and sound mind. I put so much in you, Andrew. Stop being afraid and start walking in and bringing what I bring to rooms, not what religion brings. So you're like, well, what happens when Jesus? Well, let me read Jesus' job description to you. You're like, Jesus had a job description? He did. He actually read it out loud when he started his ministry. So it says, this is what Jesus says. He goes into his very first Jewish synagogue gathering. He grabs the scroll of Isaiah and he reads out loud his job description that was prophetically given thousands of years before that. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is what Jesus then left and did. Where there were people that were captive, he went and proclaimed freedom, life, and liberty. He went and did it. And the beautiful thing is, some of this is physical, some of this is spiritual, but he did all of it. So recovery of sight to the blind eyes, did Jesus heal blind eyes? He spit on some of them, which is super weird. If you came to me right now and you're like, I'm blind and I spit in your eyes, I think you'd be offended. But the recovery of sight to dead spiritual eyes, Jesus does that. The recovery of physically blind eyes, Jesus does that too. Where Jesus shows up, true religion comes shining forth and old dead things fall away. And Jesus shows up and he proclaims liberty to those that are oppressed. Jesus shows up and he proclaims the Lord's favor. So I'm going to ask this question. When you look around your life, are you doing that? Are you proclaiming the freedom, liberty, and favor of God to the people that you meet? Or are you joining the enemy and heaping accusation, anger, and fear? And I believe the Lord would have us join him in his work. I believe the Lord would say, hey, why don't you go now and proclaim my goodness? Because the beauty of the cross, yes, is that Jesus died in our place, but it's the mo this moment that Jesus came to me and he says, you give me your unrighteousness and I'll give you your righteousness in the favor of God. I have the favor of God on my life, not because I earned it, because Jesus gave it. And we don't understand favor, but favor is what I have for my daughter, Grace. I like her a little bit more than her brothers right now. Don't tell them. Um, I like her. She walks in and she gets my attention. She walks in and she gets my protection. She walks in, she gets I this like favor. That is a drop of what we have in Jesus. And then now he's saying, now I want you. Where are there people that are captive around you? Where are the oppressed people that the people of God will go and destroy the works of the devil? This is the work that we are called into. And so often what religion will do is go, no, 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 all you got to do is come here on a Sunday. Put on a nice colored shirt. I hate colored shirts, but I'm wearing one. I love colored shirts. Sit here for an hour and you've done your duty. But Jesus didn't say, come sit in a room and do a religious act. Come join my religion. He said, come follow me. And this is what Jesus is doing on the earth. 
not that picture, the scripture. So I want to teach you a prayer, and then we're going to lean into these things. And you're like, what do you mean we lean into these things? Well, I'll explain it. Uh, I think a prayer that destroys the spirit of religion everywhere it goes is a very simple prayer. Whatever you want, Jesus. Whatever you want. And if you can say that prayer today, I want you literally to prepare for the kingdom of God to break into your life, your work, your business. Because if you pray it today, you're telling God, I'll do whatever. I want what Jesus wants. Because I believe sometimes, maybe in this church, but a lot of churches I've been in, if Jesus walked in that door right now and started calling out sickness and disease and sins, we would be like, I'd be fine because it's Jesus. But if we did it, you'd be offended. So be careful, because I, I, I don't want to believe I have a spirit of religion on me, but I operate in it sometimes. I want to operate taught by the Word of God under the influence of the Spirit of God. And so when I pray this prayer, I always add to it. I say, whatever you want, wherever you want, however you want. So if Jesus Christ wants to wake me up at 3 in the morning by His Spirit to pray for each of you by name, I will because that's what he wants. And my king gets what he wants, because I love him. If Jesus wants me to sit in that prayer room and pray the rest of my life and never get to talk to you again, that's fine. He gets what he wants. And the spirit of religion hates that because the religious spirit wants what it wants. But we're Jesus. So if Jesus wants me to go uptown and stand on a soapbox and be the weird guy that announces the kingdom of God, guess where you're going to find me? Being the weird guy standing out Chipotle, yelling about the kingdom of God. If Jesus prompts me in the middle of wherever I am to go ask someone, hey, I see that you're limping, can I pray healing for you? I will be that man. Why? Because I want Jesus to have his way. And I want to join him in the work of pronouncing freedom for the oppressed. There is no captivity in Jesus, there's freedom. And so I don't know where you are with that, but I, what I notice about Jesus, so this man with the withered hand, Jesus physically healed him. Jesus took notice of the one with the bent hand and made it well. Jesus still does that, and he's going to do that in this room. Jesus, two chapters before this, he's brought a boy that is demonically oppressed. He's controlled and shook by a demon. The demon sees Jesus when Jesus walks up and yells, what do you have to do with us? And Jesus says, you stop and get out of it. The oppressed are set free in Jesus. And then two chapters before that, I've already talked about it, the man that's brought before Jesus through the ceiling by his friends, do you know the first thing he says to that man? Your sins are forgiven. And the religious people lose their minds. This is what Jesus does. He forgives sins. He sets the oppressed free. He heals physically, mentally, spiritually, blind eyes spiritually, blind eyes physically. This is Jesus. Are you following Jesus? Or you could be like me some weeks and you have found yourself into some impure religion. Religion that doesn't have Jesus in it anyway. And that's what I want to invite you into. So I'm going to invite the band up. Well, the two persons. It was a long weekend. And then I'm going to invite every prayer team member to line up the front of this. 
And uh, I'm pretty comfortable with awkwardness these days. So what we're going to do is just stare at you. They're going to lightly play. I'm going to pray. And then if you feel any of this, that you need healing, deliverance, forgiveness of sins, Jesus stuff, that you would come and receive prayer. And that's how we're going to end today.